Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. We have begun to take a look at one of Shakespeare's greatest comedies, Twelfth Night. And I admit that the timing has been deliberate because as this is being recorded, we are moving into December towards the holiday signified by the title. Twelfth Night is a reference to the 12 days of Christmas. And Twelfth Night, the twelfth and last day and night, were religiously at the Feast of the Epiphany on January the 6th. But in secular terms, it was a period of carnival, revelry, festivity. Twelfth Night is one of the so-called festive comedies of Shakespeare. And festivity and revelry are one of the central themes of the play, even though this is an extremely rich play with many interlocking, interconnecting themes. As usual, Shakespeare introduces the main characters gradually in a methodical way in scene after scene of act one, sometimes lapping over into the first scene or two of act two. And that is true of Twelfth Night. We have already met our heroine, Viola, one of the most famous and attractive in all ways of Shakespeare's heroines in the comedies, who has been washed up out of the sea after a storm of which she thinks, although she will find out at the very end of the play that she is mistaken, she thinks she is the sole survivor, washed up upon the shores of the fictitious country of Illyria. But plucky heroine, she immediately starts coping, starts surviving, starts going about the act of living. She disguises herself as a male for safety's sake. A woman alone in a strange country is not a good thing, and ends up in the employ of Duke Orsino under the name of Cesario. She is immediately a hit with the Duke, and increasingly a hit with the Duke in a way that gradually will become more and more uncomfortable. The Duke very much likes her and is increasingly drawn to her, or rather I should say he, because the Duke thinks it is a slightly feminine-seeming high-voiced male that he is drawn to, named Cesario. But at any rate, the Duke likes and approves of Cesario so much that he sends him as an emissary to woo the woman that he at least thinks he's in love with, Olivia, who is having no part of love at the moment and indeed no part of life because she has sequestered herself in her own place, alone, and is in mourning even um, including wearing a veil, plans to do this for seven years in mourning for her dead father and brother, which 
gives her something in common with Viola. They both have lost a brother, or at least that's the belief at the present moment. But their responses to grief and loss are clearly quite different. Viola bursts in, refuses to be evicted, throws away the phony prepared speech of love that she is supposed to deliver on behalf of the Duke, and begin, begins talking on her own with such vitality and wit that Olivia is quite enchanted. Says that he will return, Cesario goes out the door. We also meet in Act One the secondary plot, the subplot. Almost every Shakespearean comedy has a double plot, a main romantic plot and a secondary contrapuntal subplot that eventually will have connections with and interactions with the main plot. And the subplot is usually satiric as the main plot is romantic, and it usually features the lower class characters where the upper plot features the well-born characters, but here there is a twist. The comic characters here of the satiric subplot are in fact aristocrats. We have Sir Toby Belch, which by his name you can tell he is the comic alcoholic. We have Sir Andrew Aguecheek. We have Maria, who is not a servant, but it turns out a lady-in-waiting, in other words, a gentlewoman, and a minor character named Fabian. These are not the type of characters that we expect to be part of the comic subplot, and especially one that involves disorder and carousing. And that is integral to the theme of social overturn that is another main theme in this play. Their main activity is carousing, and they are opposed by Olivia's steward, Malvolio, whose job is to keep order in the house and who is a figure of grim sobriety and therefore the natural enemy of this carousing group. In Act Two, we meet yet another set of characters, Antonio and Sebastian. And Sebastian is the brother, the supposedly lost, and yet not actually lost, brother of Viola. And not only that, but as he confesses to his friend Antonio, the twin brother. They are identical twins. As the scene opens, Sebastian tells Antonio who it is quite clear is, has become a close, dear male friend, that I have, I confess, not been telling you exactly the truth about myself. I am in disguise. You know me as Rodrigo, but in fact I am Sebastian. And he says, my father 
was that Sebastian of Messaline, whom I know you have heard of. He left behind him myself and a sister, both born in an hour. They are identical twins, and the audience can probably already guess that there's going to be confusion about identity born of the idea of identical twins combined with gender disguising on the part of Viola. These motifs go back to what is probably Shakespeare's very earliest comedy, the comedy of errors. The errors are errors of identity born in that case of two sets of twins. And in fact, there is a lot of strange echoing going on here. The names are echoing in a way that is rather curious. Antonio and Sebastian, these two fast friends, those names will be the names of the two villains in Shakespeare's final romance, his more or less going out play, The Tempest, another of the sea and tempest comedies or romances. They are there the villains. Why he reuses the names for very different characters is not clear, really. And Rodrigo, his disguised name, is also a name elsewhere in Shakespeare. It is the name of the dupe who hangs out with Iago in Othello, which is what you might call a sea tragedy, a tragedy with a symbolic tempest in it, and the imagery of the sea and the chaos and destruction of the sea. When I was in grad school, I had a friend who, speaking of the work of Northrop Frye, talking about Shakespeare's comedies and romances, said, he's brilliant, though of course he makes them all into one big comedy. And that struck me because, although I, I saw what she meant, it struck me as that is in fact quite true because on some sort of greater level, they really are, in a way, one big comedy, one big pattern that keeps playing endless variations. And it may be that this reusing of names is connected with that fact. Certainly in the final romances, Shakespeare is deliberately going back and echoing not only names, but entire plot patterns, including Othello. In The Winter's Tale, there is an insanely jealous, for no reason, character named Leontes, who clearly echoes the insane, jealous Othello. Shakespeare going back in a retroactive way and revisiting as if he himself saw that he's been playing variations on a theme perhaps for his entire career. At any rate, we have these two fast male friends, and Sebastian is going to go in to the court of Duke Orsino, but he needs to keep in disguise because he is not a favorite of the Duke for reasons that we will find later. It is dangerous for him to be in this land. He is a wanted man. The reason for this only comes out, as I say, 
later on. Nonetheless, the theme of male friendship comes in here as yet another motif that really is all, in a sense, the same play variations on common patterns. The pattern of male friendship contrasted with heterosexual romantic love all the way back to another very early play, Two Gentlemen of Verona. And this was a Renaissance commonplace. It was a commonplace that male friendship was in fact superior to romantic love because it was less selfish. It was less self-interested. And these two friends are indeed generous heartwarming friends. Antonio says, I don't care if you say it's dangerous, I do adore thee so, that danger shall seem sport, and I will go, I will go with you. Moving friendship. In scene two of act two, we encounter our heroine Viola, who is in the act of leaving the house of Olivia, but is suddenly accosted by Malvolio, who comes running up and says, because he's been ordered, as we know from Act One, to do this, has been ordered to return this ring that you gave to my mistress. And Viola is nonplussed. Uh, Malvolio insists, he throws down the ring. My mistress wants none of your tokens. She is not interested in you, forget it. Viola, alone again, picks up the ring and says, I left no ring with her. What means this lady? And Viola knows pretty well what means this lady. It is an expression of interest. So already we have the theme that will run through the play getting more and more complicated, more and more excruciating for our poor Viola of a woman who is disguised as a man who it is clear has a woman, Olivia, who is increasingly drawn to her, attracted to her, as a rather feminine man, Cesario, not realizing that she's attracted to another woman. And on the other side, Orsino, who is drawn, he professes just in friendship, to this young fellow who has kind of some effeminate ways about him named Cesario, who is really a woman, and she doesn't know what to do about this. In a soliloquy at the end of scene two, she says, poor lady, she were better love a dream. Disguise, I see, thou art a wickedness. This is a problem, and she does not know what to do about it. Her last two lines of the soliloquy are, old time, thou must untangle this, not I. It is too hard a knot for me to untie. An innocuous enough line, but as usual in Shakespeare, we may not be able to see that now, 
But if we know the entire play, and if we know all those other plays where similar patterns abound, we know that there's more here than just an expression of exasperation. The power of time or of some greater power that moves through time, recreating human life and the situation of the play is a primary theme in all of the comedies and romances. And as is often said in relationship to The Tempest, the last play, the word tempest is related to the Latin word for time, tempus, so that we have interlocking imagery of the sea and tempest, which is destructive, and time is held to be destructive too. And yet, all life comes out of the sea. The goddess of love, Aphrodite or Venus, came out of the sea. It is the source of life as well as death. And time is the source of new creation as well as destruction. There are going to be profound ramifications of all this. In scene three, we move away from profound ramifications to satire and foolishness in all senses of the word because we have the reveling crew led by Sir Toby Belch who encounter the literal clown named Fest, whose name of course signifies the theme of festivity. They encounter each other and Fest is the kind of a clown who is a jester. Uh, he used to be in the employ of Olivia's father. He comes from an older time and he has the court jester job of being the entertainer, of joking and satirizing, but also of singing. This play, another theme is music. The very first opening speech is the speech that we looked at by Duke Orsino. If music be the food of love, play on the theme of music. And it is virtually a musical comedy. As much can be said of many of Shakespeare's comedies, some more than others, but certainly Twelfth Night is full of songs. And here, Fest is asked to sing a love song. And he sings one whose theme is the age-old theme of Carpe Diem, Seize the Day. It begins, O oh, mistress mine, where are you roaming? O oh, stay and hear your true love's coming. Trip no further, pretty sweeting, journeys end in lovers' meeting. But it goes on into a statement of the theme. What is love? Tis not hereafter. Present mirth hath present laughter. What's to come is still unsure. In delay there lies no plenty. Then come and kiss me, sweet and twenty. Youth's a stuff will not endure. Seize the day 
which always implies make love now for time, the theme of time, moves onward. Love is now, tis not hereafter. But of course, Festus singing this in a play in which Olivia's household is in mourning, or at least Olivia is, and in the other household of Duke Orsino, he is wallowing in a type of lover's melancholy in a way that seems anything but festive, anything but carpe diem. The Duke is madly in love, or so he thinks, but he is passively mooning. He has put himself in a position of adoring from afar. Olivia has shut herself up and refused not just love, but life itself, perhaps. Carpe diem not at the moment. So we have the conflict set up. This crowd, however, have no problem with partying and festivity whatsoever. That's what they do. And they do it at any hour of the day and night. And this is the night. Act two, scene three begins as Sir Toby makes a joke to Sir Andrew. Not to be abed after midnight is to be up betimes. It's an old joke. You still hear versions of it now. If you stay up late enough, you end up getting up early. It's after midnight. It's the middle of the night. And they're out here singing and partying. Sir Toby launches into Fest, we assume, is a professional singer and actually sounds good. But Toby is the drunk bellowing out on the street in the middle of the night. And the first thing he bellows significantly is, oh, the 12th day of December, a reference to the title of our play. It's not quite accurate, and in the Bevington edition that I use, there's a footnote that says possibly Toby's error for the 12th day of Christmas or 12th night, which is not the 12th day of December. I rather wonder about that. My Expanding Eyes newsletter that came out today, December 1st, is about the imagery of light and darkness moving towards the solstice, the longest night and shortest day of the year, the time when the light is most diminished. And that is a time of the lighting of lights in the darkness in response to it. The solstice is actually accurately celebrated these days on December 21st. But according to the old calendar, and there is constant reference to the old days, Fest comes from the old days, a previous time in Twelfth Night. In the old days, as I say in the newsletter, it used to occur on December 13th, which is St. Lucy's Day, the feast day of St. Lucy, whose name means light, and who was the patron saint of vision. 
Therefore, it could just be that Shakespeare is suggesting the old date of the solstice. But at any rate, we don't need to pin it down. We get the idea. Malvolio bursts in. My masters, are you mad? What are you doing out here bellowing in the middle of the night? Are you mad? Readers of Shakespeare know that Shakespeare works according to what are almost musical leitmotifs, constant, repeated words of thematic import thrown in. The theme of madness begins to shape up. And as I said, when we began discussing the play, Twelfth Night is right next door in time to Hamlet. The theme of madness crosses between the plays very easily. And he has to shut them up. And Malvolio is the opposite of festivity. He is of the type, as I also said last time, that Northrop Fry calls the refuser of festivity in many of the comedies. And he is the party poop. And he is the sober, serious sourpuss who, yes, it's his job to keep social order, but there's a temperamental thing going on here as well. Signified by his name, Malvolio means ill will, and he is certainly ill-willed enough. And there is natural antagonism between him and the crowd of the revelers led by Sir Toby plus Fest, the clown, and Sir Toby lights into him. Well, the first thing they do is just try to get his goat by continuing to sing back and forth and drown him out by a rather loud back and forth singing. And then Sir Toby says, dost thou think because thou art virtuous, there shall be no more cakes and ale? And Malvolio doesn't know what to do. He really cannot control this crowd. All he can do is bluster. And in the end, he's going to do what, like a kid, I'm going to go tell. Speaking of Olivia, he says, she shall know of it by this hand. This is her household. And I'm going to go tell. When he's gone, they talk about him. And as a matter of fact, they hatch a plot. They are going to get this guy. Maria says, Mary, sir, sometimes he is a kind of Puritan. And Sir Andrew says, oh, if I thought that, I'd beat him like a dog. Here we have a moment of the word Puritan signifies not only a religious reference, but a class antagonism. The Puritans in England in Shakespeare's time were the rising middle class. And they already had the puritanical air about them, an attitude that has given us our use of that word puritanical. He is a kind of Puritan, but Shakespeare contrives the dialogue here immediately to go away 
from a religious attack. He understands that this could be taken in a way that he doesn't intend. And Maria, therefore, goes on to say that she has a second thought and takes that back. The devil, a Puritan that he is, or anything consistently, but a time-pleaser, an affectioned ass. A time-pleaser means is a social climber. He wants to climb. His, all his concern for order and his job as steward are all a power trip, a way of climbing socially. And there is the theme of overturn here. These are the actual well-born characters. They are socially above Malvolio, though in terms of authority in the household, he is supposed to have sway over them. And they can't stand him, and they're going to play a trick on him. Maria announces, I can write very like my lady Eunice. And the plot is hatched. She is going to contrive a letter that will look as if it's from the hand of Olivia, and they will drop it in a prominent place so that Malvolio can find it and read it, and we will see that play out in a later point of time. However, we move back from Olivia's household to that of Duke Orsino, and again, Orsino announces, give me some music. And what he wants is that old and antique song we heard last night. Methought it did relieve my passion much, more than light airs and recollected terms of these most brisk and giddy-paced times. I want music, and I want that old antique song. Why do I want that? Because it's a negative key, a minor key song, not this cheerful pop stuff that everybody seems to like these days. Well, that old song has to be sung, they tell him, by Fest, the jester, my lord, a fool that the Lady Olivia's father took much delight in. Fest comes from the older generation. He knows the old songs. But he happens to be about the house, and they go find him. Well, they're looking for Fest. Orsino and Cesario, in other words, the disguised Viola, have an interesting conversation about love. And, of course, Orsino thinks it's a conversation between two guys. We're two guys, and we're going to do what guys do, talk about women, and talk about how it is being in love with women. And Orsino says, boy, however we do praise ourselves, our fancies are more giddy and unfirm, more longing, wavering, sooner lost and worn than women's are. If you want to talk about constancy in love, however we praise ourselves, women are the more constant ones. Cesario says quietly, I think it well, my lord, indeed. 
And Orsino has asked him, do you have someone you're in love with? Viola replies, a little, by your favor. Orsino asks, what kind of woman is it of Cesario? Viola replies, of your complexion, which horrifies Orsino, or she's not worthy then, what years in faith? About your years, my lord, too old by heaven. Let still the woman take an elder than herself. You're in love with a woman who looks like me, looks like a guy, and is much older than you are, this will not do. But of course, this is Viola, confessing without confessing that she's in love with Orsino. She cannot confess that. She has to maintain her disguise, and she has to remain in disguise partly because she has accepted a task. She is a constant lover, and she is wooing another woman for Orsino. Why would she do that out of love, out of love for Orsino? This is what he wants. It's not good for me. I want him myself, but I will do this unselfishly. That is a crucial thing to see, that what she is doing is for his good, at the expense of her own. At any rate, they enter with Fest the Clown, and Orsino asks for that song that he loves. And Fest sings in the middle of what is supposed to be a festive comedy, a song that starts, Come away, come away, death. In sad cypress let me be laid. Fly away, fly away, breath. I am slain by a fair, cruel maid. And it goes on for a number of verses talking about dying for love because my lover is cruel and will have none of me, all of which fits, of course, the kind of courtly love, mooning melancholy that Orsino just loves to bask in. And as a matter of fact, Fest, who gets it, says as he goes out again, now the melancholy god protect thee. And that's the Duke, locked into a rather useless, mooning melancholy of unrequited love. And Viola says of Olivia, but if she cannot love you, sir, Orsino insists, I cannot be so answered. And Orsino bursts out there is no woman's sides can buy the beating of so strong a passion as love doth give my heart. No woman so big to hold so much. They lack retention. Alas, their love may be called appetite. No motion of the liver but the palate. They suffer surfeit, cloyment, and revolt. 
but mine is all as hungry as the sea, and I and can digest as much. Make no compare between that love a woman can bear me and that I owe Olivia. We're not even out of the same scene in which he has admitted earlier that it's women who are the more constant lovers. This is all what he has just said, male bluster, male baloney. And Viola replies, my father had a daughter, loved a man, as it might be perhaps were I a woman, I should your lordship. And what's her history, Orsino asks. A blank, my lord. She never told her love, but let concealment, like a worm in the bud, feed on her damask cheek. She pined in thought, and with a green and yellow melancholy, sat like patience on a monument, smiling at grief. Was this not love indeed? We men may say more, swear more, but indeed our shows are more than will. My father had a daughter, loved a man, and she never told her love, but she pines in melancholy. And of course, that's Viola right now. She sat, often quoted lines, she sat like patience, the figure of patience carved on a grave, on a monument, smiling at grief and pines away. Unfortunately, this melancholy of Illyria is contagious and Viola recognizes that she is in danger of catching it and indeed already has. We will have to see how time plays all this out as we go on next week. Mm -hmm.